0: In every generation, there have always been a handful of promising young musicians who were bound to rise to the top and leave their marks on the social consciousness as well as the history books. Such was the story for Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson, the big bopper, in late 1950s America, and the Winter Dance Party tour of 1959 was going to be just one of the many stepping stones on their path to stardom. At least, it was supposed to be. Welcome back to Air Scare Stories. Today we'll be taking a look at the plane crash dubbed The Day the Music Died, which took the lives of three of the most promising rock and roll musicians of their time. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson, the Big Bopper. It's November 1958, and Buddy Holly had just recently left his band The Crickets, hoping to get more into the production and publishing side of the music business. The Crickets had enjoyed great success with Holly at the helm, including their first hit song, That'll Be The Day, which had peaked at number three on the Billboard Top 100 chart in September of 57. The band was so successful in rock and roll that other upcoming bands had already started covering some of their songs. One of those bands would eventually become The Beatles. Yep, The Beatles. That should tell you how influential Buddy Holly and the Crickets were back then. Beatles? Crickets? The 1950s were weird. After leaving the Crickets, Buddy Holly was pretty broke. That's because their manager, Norman Petty, had allegedly stolen all their money. Nice. On top of that, he also wanted to move to New York to live with his new wife, Maria Elena, who was also now pregnant with their first baby. So he signed up with the General Artists Association, or GAC, who were planning a tour in Britain, which he wanted to be a part of. But that wasn't gonna happen right away. First, he'd have to get through the Winter Dance Party Tour, a tour of 24 Midwestern cities in 24 days with almost no time off. But having ended things with the crickets, he now would have to assemble a whole new band for this tour. For the new band, he brought in Waylon Jennings to play bass guitar, Tommy Alsup for the electric guitar, and Carl Bunch for the drums. But Buddy Holly and his band weren't going to be the only young stars on this tour. New hit artists Richie Valens, J.P. Richardson, better known as the Big Bopper, and the vocal group Dion and the Belmonts were all scheduled to be part of it. All of these artists already had popular hits that had reached the charts, ranging from number 19 all the way up to number 1. So this was going to be an extremely popular and raucous tour for the kids of 1950s middle America. The tour kicked off in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January 23, 1959. With one show down, there were only 23 to go. Although it was going to be arduous, it shouldn't have been too demanding given the right transportation arrangements. Unfortunately, the guys would soon realize that these arrangements weren't quite as good as they'd hoped. First of all, the tour schedule didn't follow a logical systematic order. Instead, they zigzagged back and forth between cities, sometimes traveling 10 to 12 hours a day in freezing midwinter temperatures. Secondly, their buses kept breaking down. In the first 11 days of the tour alone, the buses hadn't just been fixed, but completely exchanged five different times. To make matters worse, the buses weren't really built for moving in harsh weather conditions, which they usually found themselves in, such as driving in waist deep snow. The situation was so bad that one time when the bus broke down, they had to spend the night burning newspapers in the aisle to try and keep warm. Carl Bunch, who was playing the drums in Buddy Holly's band, developed frostbite on his feet due to the extreme cold and had to be hospitalized. This was a big problem because Buddy Holly's band was actually the band for all the other musicians as well. So each of the stars ended up having to play drums for each other's sets. Buddy Holly played drums for Dion, Dion played drums for Richie Valens, and Richie Valens played drums for Buddy Holly. On top of that, some of the other members, including Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, got sick and started experiencing flu-like symptoms. Imagine how frustrating that whole thing must have been. It's Monday, February 2nd, 1958. The bands had just driven 350 miles from their previous day's concert in Green Bay, Wisconsin, to arrive at Clear Lake, Iowa. But fortunately, they had the day to themselves, as there were no shows scheduled that night. They could relax and get some much-needed rest. The tour promoters, however, were not comfortable with having a day without a show running, so they made a few calls to the manager of the local surf ballroom, Carol Anderson, and offered him a show, which he accepted. The bands had no option but to perform, but by this point, they were not very happy at all with what was going on, especially the situation with the terrible transportation arrangements. After that night's show in Iowa, their next one would be in Moorhead, Minnesota, a 365 mile drive, which would take them back through two towns they'd already played in the previous week. By now, Buddy Holly had had just about enough of the faulty buses and the freezing cold rides back and forth across the Midwest. He decided he was going to travel by charter plane to Fargo, North Dakota, which was close by to Moorhead. They would have at least had the opportunity to rest, especially since the gig in Moorhead was a radio performance at a local station, not at another rowdy nightclub. They made the calls and necessary arrangements with Roger Peterson, a young man who had built his life around flying and with about four years of experience, having already logged over 700 flight hours. The plane for their trip was a 1947 single-engine V-tailed Beechcraft 35 Bonanza which could seat up to four people at a time, that is, the pilot and three passengers. After that night's show in Clear Lake, it was time to hit the road. Richardson, the big bopper, who was not part of Buddy Holly's original band, asked if he could fly in place of bassist Waylon Jennings because he'd contracted the flu and wasn't feeling well, which Jennings agreed to. Richie Valens did something similar and asked guitarist Tommy Alsup for his seat on the plane. Now this was pretty odd because he was known to have a fear of flying but more than likely the terrible traveling conditions had gotten to him and he just wanted a little bit of relief from the cold bus ride as well. The two decided to flip a coin in the ballroom's side stage to decide who would fly and Richie Valens won. He was so excited yet surprised that he's reported to have said that it was the first time he had won anything in his whole life. Meanwhile Buddy Holly, who'd heard that Waylon Jennings wasn't going to be flying with him, jokingly told him, Well I hope your old bus freezes up. And Waylon Jennings joked back, Well, I hope your old plane crashes. This interaction would end up being remembered, but for all the wrong reasons. After the boys had decided who was gonna get to fly to the next show, they took off for the nearby Mason City Municipal Airport to board their plane. The weather at the time of departure consisted of light snow with a cloud ceiling of 3,000 feet and a visibility of six miles. This weather sounded good enough for the pilot, so they all climbed aboard and the plane took off at one o'clock in the morning on February 3rd, 1959. This weather briefing, however, failed to mention that the weather along their planned route was quickly deteriorating. Without this crucial information, pilot Roger Peterson and his three passengers took off into the freezing cold night. Hubert Jerry Dwyer, owner of the Dwyer Flying Service, which had chartered the plane for the group, witnessed the southbound takeoff from a platform outside the control tower. He could see the tail of the plane from the time it took off climbing up to around 800 feet but then he saw it start slowly descending after a left turn until it disappeared from sight. He asked the radio operator to try to make contact with the plane, but after multiple attempts, no contact could be made. When morning came and they still hadn't heard from the missing plane, Dwyer decided to take off in another plane to retrace Peterson's planned route. After just a few minutes, he spotted the plane's wreckage less than six miles northwest of the airport. He quickly called the sheriff's office and deputies were dispatched to the site. What they saw was heartbreaking to say the least. J.P. Richardson's body had been thrown over a fence into a nearby cornfield. Peterson's body had been entangled in the wreckage and the bodies of Buddy Holly and Richie Valens had been ejected from the fuselage and laid on the cold ground nearby. None of the four men had survived. Since the other musicians were already en route to Minnesota, Carol Anderson, the owner of the surf ballroom was called on to identify the bodies. The county coroner visited the scene and stated that all four men had died instantly due to massive head trauma. Based on the findings from the official investigation, it was concluded that the plane had hit the ground banked steeply to the right in a nose down attitude and at an estimated speed of 167 miles per hour. The right wing tips struck the ground first, which sent the plane cartwheeling across the frozen field for more than 500 feet before coming to rest against a wire fence. The investigation also revealed that Roger Peterson, the young pilot, was not yet qualified to operate in the poor weather conditions they were experiencing that night. Such weather conditions require instrument flight training, which although Peterson had just recently passed the written exam and had logged 52 hours of instrument flight training, he wasn't yet qualified to fly in a situation that solely depended on it. Instrument flying refers to the control and navigation of a plane by reference only to its gauges or instruments, in situations with limited or no visibility outside the cockpit. Peterson was only trained to operate under visual flight rules, which is essentially being able to see the ground at all times during a flight. In fact, Peterson had failed his last instrument practical test, or checkride, some nine months before the accident. The situation that night would have made it impossible to fly using visual rules, and he would have had to rely solely on his instruments as soon as he entered those low-flying clouds. But even if that hadn't been a problem, he would have run into another stumbling block because of the nature of the instruments. Peterson had been trained on planes using a conventional artificial horizon, whereas the Beechcraft Bonanza he was flying that night had been equipped with a much older type of gyroscope. Both of these devices inform the pilot of the plane's orientation relative to the Earth's horizon, but with one big difference. The conventional artificial horizon he trained with displayed the Earth's horizon on a moving ball, while the Sperry F3 attitude gyroscope used a design in which the ball is kept fixed with respect to the ground. This probably would have seemed very confusing to Peterson, and even to most experienced pilots today. It isn't clear whether or not he was aware of this, but if not, It means that he could have easily flown the plane downwards into the ground thinking he was actually going up trying to get above the clouds. When the tragic news was made public by the media in 1959, it sent shockwaves through the music world. The news shocked the artist's fans, their colleagues, and of course their friends and families. Buddy Holly's wife, Maria Elena, might have been hit the hardest as she suffered a miscarriage shortly after learning of her husband's death due to psychological trauma. She even blamed herself stating that her husband would have never boarded that plane if she'd been there with him. She was so distraught that she was unable to even attend the funeral. Waylon Jennings was another person who blamed himself for the crash due to his last words to Buddy Holly. Remember, he was the guy who said, Well, I hope you're all plane crashes. He has stated that he never saw footage of the crash until 15 years after the event. He could never understand why someone like him would continue to live and someone like Buddy Holly, who'd contributed so much to the world, would just die in an instant. Following the deaths of the stars, the tour was never called off by the GAC, but the remaining band members would only end up playing for two more weeks before quitting and going back home. This accident had a profound effect on the music industry and the consciousness of the teenagers and young adults of the 1950s. Several movies have been made about the lives and tragic deaths of these musicians, including The Buddy Holly Story in 1978 and La Bamba in 1987. But probably the most well-known and moving retelling of the story has got to be the song The Day the Music Died by Don McLean. It tells the story of how he was a 13-year-old boy at the time of the crash and the profound effect it had on him and his whole world. It also goes on to describe some of the radical social and cultural changes that occurred in the 1960s in America and around the world and the loss of innocence of his generation. He pinpoints the plane crash as the straw that broke the camel's back and started the baby boomer generation on their journey down the road to disillusionment. He perfectly captured the feelings of shock, loss, and anger about the deadly crash, and forever immortalized that loss of innocence as the day the music died. If you like this video and wanna hear more stories of aviation incidents and accidents, please hit the like and subscribe buttons. Is there an aviation story you'd like us to cover? Leave it in the comment section below and we might just surprise you. Thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you on the next Air Scare Stories.